You're listening to a Why Now podcast. This is Golden Nuggets podcast on whynow.co.uk. I'm your host, Al, and I'm a PE teacher of 15 years. This podcast is about interviewing key influencers in education and giving them a platform to deliver their story. I want to explore why and how they do what they do to better inform parents and pupils on their education journey. Okay, welcome to Golden Nuggets podcast. What can you do today that will influence tomorrow? And this episode is about the purpose of effective leadership and how leaders influence society. My next guest is Stuart Lancaster, and he's been described uh, as a real straight bloke and is very well respected at Leinster. One of the most selfless and humble blokes I've ever met. Hi, Stuart. How are you doing? You okay? Yes, good. Good, good. I'm in, uh, not in Dublin, I'm in Leeds. so we were due to fly to South Africa and we had uh, Saracens lined up in the quarterfinal of Europe and then obviously lockdown kicked in. So I flew back to Leeds and uh, I've not been back. So my cast in the Dublin airport. <laughs> but it's nice to spend some time with the family there, I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I've been on the road a lot, uh, obviously flying um, back and forth to Dublin, but even prior to then, you know, working with England, going up and down to Twickenham all the time. Uh, so, yeah, it's been quite... Um, nice to spend some time, like say, my wife and kids, certainly over the last two or three weeks. And um, just for those listeners that don't know who you are, which I'm, I'm sure won't be many, but um, if you could just introduce yourself and a, a quick history of, of, of what you've done and what you've achieved. Um, so I was originally born and bred, <coughs> excuse me, uh, on a, um, a small farm in Cumbria, um, and I went to uh, an independent school on the west coast of Cumbria called St. Bees. Went there till I was. 18, I uh, went to university in Leeds and did a sports science degree, which led to a PGCE. Uh, I taught, I taught PE, uh, initially at a school called Heesham High School in um, Morecambe. And then I went to Kettlethorpe High School in Wakefield and taught there till I was 30. Um, obviously, the game of rugby was going through the transition from to, to professional at this point. Um, so I was playing rugby at the time. Um, I took one year out and had a sabbatical from teaching to play full time. Um, and then when I was 30, I got injured, actually. And then that led to the academy manager's job uh, at Leeds, which led to the head coaching job at Leeds, uh, which then led to the head of elite player development job at uh, the RFU, which involved coaching England Saxons, uh, which then led to the England interim job, the England head coaching job, and obviously now the Leinster, the Leinster job. Um, if we just go back to uh, your childhood slightly, uh, what would an average day growing up as a child be like for yourself? Well, I went away to school when I was 10. So, you know, obviously pre-10 years old, um, I was at a small primary school in the village. So, you know, we live on a um, a 360-acre farm. So we've got, you know, fantastic lands. It's a, it's a small village. Um, but we've got this great um, farm and farm buildings. And uh, um, so, you know forever in a day exploring the farm, playing TIG games, playing build a castle games with bales of hay. Um, and uh, generally just following my dad around as, a, <laughs> uh, as an assist, assistant farmer. Um, what, what was your favourite memory growing up? Uh, there were many, really. I mean, you had a really happy childhood. You know, there was no... 
No trauma really to speak of. Obviously, um, going away to school at 10 was quite traumatic at the time, but my, bro- my older brother had gone the year before, so at least I had the comfort of him being around. Um, but we, um, we had some great mates at school, that were, that were, that were great friendships that were made at school. Um, it was centred around rugby, obviously, um, and uh, a really good teacher, Tony Rolt. Um, but I really enjoyed my, my school days. Um, and mates I made at school um, are still probably my best mates now. Um, in fact, we've got a, um, a Zoom call tonight uh, to, uh, to catch up with everyone, um, which I'm looking forward to. So this is now, what, 30-odd years since we left. Oh, well. Um, what, just going back to, to your dad following your dad around as assistant farmer, what, what impact do you think um, your family had on you as, as an individual? Well, huge, really. I mean, unfortunately, my dad passed away, um, uh, well, a year and a half ago. So he was on the farm, still farming as he would, uh, and, but he had a cardiac arrest and he um, collapsed suddenly. You know, he's fit and well, 78 years old, uh, collapsed. And my mum did an amazing job to keep him alive. You know, um, the ambulance came. This is rural farms, so it took a while. But unfortunately, the damage to his brain on the back of the cardiac arrest um, uh, meant he never recovered so it was a tragedy really and you know I still think a lot about him today um, but what I'm leading to saying is I did the uh, eulogy at his funeral and you know I, I talked a lot about the values that my dad um, gave me that ultimately I think has helped me um, along the path that I've gone you know particularly work ethic you know he was a he was a straight-up guy you know, he was good with people. He was humble. Um, he worked hard. Um, he had a good group of friends. He loved his work. He loved being outside. Um, and he was very proud of his family. So, you know, you can't help but be shaped by your parents, obviously. Um, but, but for my dad in particular, you know, and I remember talking about all these things in his eulogy, um, how, uh, how he shaped me. And just moving on briefly to... Uh something that stood out from one of your presentations on LinkedIn was how do you balance emotional stability and becoming a great leader? Um, yeah, I think sometimes people sometimes want to see ranges of emotion as well. So emotional stability is important because you don't want to be working for a leader who is one minute, you know, high as a kite, next minute depressed or, or, or one minute they're volatile and the next minute they're passive. Um, I think, you know, you want consistency from your leaders. You want that stability. <clears throat> but sometimes you want to see ranges of emotion. I remember that I did a, um, a questionnaire to players to get feedback on me when I was a young coach. And uh, one of the comments that i never forget was from the, one of the players, Stuart Hooper, actually, who's now um, a head coach at uh, Bath. And he said, sometimes we want to see more ranges of emotion from you. We want to see when you're annoyed with us or when you're pleased with us. You know, And I'd be quite... Um, not introverted really, but I won't be that touchy feely, you know, I won't be that tactile really. Um, and I've learned so they can, you know, they can see more ranges of emotion, but they still know there's a consistency in my behavior. And um, if we just, you said you went to school, you went to boarding school at 10 years old. Um, you said some of the rugby coaches and people there influenced you. Um, who were they and, and how did they influence you? I think the two stand out would be one would be um, Tony Rott, who was the head of rugby at the time, and he. He came in in my sixth form. Um, <coughs> fantastic um, uh, rugby brain, but, but more importantly, a fantastic motivator. And, you know, we were a tiny school. Um, 
And uh, what we achieved in the context of rugby within the North of England, and, you know, winning wasn't part of sevens and some things we did was, was amazing, really. Um, so we had a good group of players, but equally he was um, the architect behind it all. So he was one, but probably the other person, which, which most people would probably think is quite odd, um, was the head teacher. Because head teachers are often seen as the, the person that's, you know, um, you know, the person who, who, who oversees the school and is quite a threatening individual. But the head teacher that, uh, at St. Peter's was a guy called Malcolm Fine. And um, he made, um, um, he appointed me as head of school. Um, so I was captain of the rugby team, head of school. And when you're a head of school at a school like St. Peter's, you pretty much are given huge leadership responsibility to almost run elements of the school. He very much treated me as an adult. He would ask my opinion on who should be the school prefects. He'd ask my opinion on um, what direction we should go. Um, we would, uh, I'd go and meet him once a week. Uh, we'd discuss the week. Um, we'd plan what he would do and what I would do. He'd get me to talk in assemblies. He'd get me to talk in the school chapel. He'd get me to organise uh, events. Um, he asked me to welcome individuals and show them around the school. Um, so the trust and empowerment that he gave me as a young leader was phenomenal, really, uh, when I think back to it. Um, and uh, he left, actually, the year I left. So he came in 1980, um, and he left in 88. I arrived in 80, and I left in 88 as well. Okay. So our, our paths followed the whole of that eight-year cycle. He then went to Fetis, I think, in Scotland. And I think he's subsequently retired. But anyway, he wrote me a fantastic note um, when I got the job as England coach. But he, he wrote me an even better one after I lost the job. Um, and how proud he was of what I'd done and what I achieved, and I should stick to my, you know, values and beliefs and everything else. So I obviously wrote back to him, and he was in York, and I went to see him. Um, so this is maybe two years ago, and it was fantastic afternoon in York with him and his wife, uh, just talking about the memories of St. Bees, the things that had happened when we were there, you know, what happened to him, his leadership journey, because he was a young head teacher as well, really, when he was at St. Bees. I didn't obviously appreciate that at the time um so yeah they'd be the two but all the teachers were good really and um and St. Bees itself helped shape my my uh, independence I think would be the way I'd describe describe it and um if we just forward wind slightly uh we're gonna go to talk about a bit about Leinster um you obviously we bypassed England in Yorkshire Carnegie here but what I'm interested in is the off-field philosophy, uh, the off-field leadership philosophy. Um, why does that matter um, to you? I, th- I think, you know, when I speak to coaches or leaders, you know, the one thing I say, you know, before you go into a leadership position is be clear on your on or off-field philosophy. Um, and uh, people say, what's my, what's my on-field philosophy? And I say, well, this is the way you see the game. So the way in which you attack, the way in which you defend, the way in which you're going to coach the team, etc. Your off-field philosophy would be the, the way in which you would build the team, you know, the values and the behaviours that you think are important for the team to become successful. Now, there's no right or wrong way to do this, you know, and every leader is different and every organisation is different. Um, but my simple model in my mind is, if you imagine a pyramid, it's culture first, identity, so where are we from, what do we stand for? Um, it's higher purpose. So the purpose, obviously, at Leinster is to, is to win trophies, but there's something beyond that, you know, winning, um, uh, driving a legacy, um, representing the former players, representing the province of Leinster, the city of Dublin, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> um, so you've got that higher purpose. 
And then you get behaviors and standards, then you get ownership, then ultimately you get player leadership. So ultimately what you're striving for is the players to own that pyramid from the top down with you as the leaders, you know, myself, Leo, et cetera, um, guiding it. Um, and uh, where you enter that pyramid depends very much on, your, on the evolution of the team that you go into. So if you put it in a business sense, and you might be going into a failed business and the whole thing needs rebooting from the start with a good culture. Or you might be going into a successful business that has a strong culture already, strong identity, and it's about tweaking one or two things at the top and, and empowering the people who work for the company to lead it. Um, so that's, that's my sort of off-field philosophy. That's, you know, the, the, I think that you're, that you're asking about. Um, so it's the, it's the vision of where you want to go, articulated by the leader. It's the values, maybe two or three that define that, and then the behaviours that sit beneath the values. What uh, values do you use at Leinster? You said two or three. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't mind sharing them, even though they're probably, they, are, they are proud, because you know, it has been spoken about um, publicly, but um, ours would be um, humble, um, brothers, and uh, ruthless. Um, so humble being um, respectful of the opposition, but, but obviously not passive humble. Um, brothers being what it, what it says, really, you know, you're looking after your brothers, your teammates, and the ruthless piece is not, you know, win at all costs, but it's a ruthless mentality to want to win because obviously that's, that is what top, top level sport's about. Mm, sure. How- and, then, and then the players, the players then, you know, they come up with the behaviours that, they come up with the values anyway, and they come up with the behaviours that underpin those values. So what I am interested in is the behaviours. Um, you have a leadership team there which is picked by the players, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Although Leo has a part to play in that as well, and and, and less so myself, but yeah. And so um, I know Scott Fardy's part of your leadership group. Why did the players decide, or Leo decide that he was? What behaviours did he demonstrate? He's the perfect person for a leadership group for a whole variety of reasons. One, he's experienced. Um, two, he's an international player. Three, he has credibility. Four, he has um, integrity as a person. Um, He's got an overseas perspective, so he's got a lot of experience from overseas, which is, adds value to the group, rather than being just from Dublin and you know, a Leinster lad through and through. Uh, he's around all the time, so he's not an international player anymore. So we don't lose, you know, we lose a lot of players at Leinster to play for Ireland, which is great, obviously. But you know, to be part of the leadership group, you know, it really helps if you're there all the time, and, and Scott is. Um, he's got a genuine enthusiasm for developing the young people in the team. Um, so he gets often more excited about the games when the Six Nations is on and our 17 best players are away and it's, it's the younger lads who are playing and we've got you know, a game away in Wales and he's, uh, he's leading the troops you know, and he absolutely genuinely uh, loves that sort of environment. So he's got no ABC of importance, um, which is a really important quality in a leader. Um, and you know, he thinks about, the, he cares about the team, he thinks about it, he's committed, you know, he's moved his family here to live in Dublin um, yeah, he's the perfect. He's almost the perfect person you'd want alongside your homegrown local lads. You know, Scott Farley basically took the space of Easton Asiwa, who did that overseas role um, brilliantly. Connecting people, you talked about small conversations and energy. What do you mean by that? Um, so the best, the best leaders have an ability to connect. Um, there's a good book um, by John Gordon who talks about the importance of um, connection and you have to communicate to connect. And um, one of the things that can happen in organisations is that you end up 
getting so busy with your day-to-day job, getting behind your email, to-do list, meeting, agenda, jobs, basically, uh, that you forget to connect with people. You don't get out on the shop floor. You know, in my world, that's the equivalent of <clears throat> sitting behind my laptop and um, uh, studying the next game I'm going to play or preparing the next presentation I'm going to give and not actually going on the gym floor where they're in the gym and having a chat with people. And it's amazing how much you can learn or how much you can connect just simply by walking around the room um, and, and having a quick chat with one or two people. Also, listen, I won't mind five minutes with a bit later on, just pop up for a chat. And you know, there's no agenda in the, other than to say, how are you getting on? You know, um, how's, how's the family? How's, um, how do you feel about selection at the moment? How do you feel you're playing? Is there anything I can do to help? That's it. That's it. It seems such a simple thing, but it's, but it's so easily forgotten. Now, even walking off the pitch after a training session, put your arm around a player, mate, I thought you were brilliant today. One of the best training sessions you've had in the last few weeks. Brilliant. If we talk about those, those small conversations you said about family, because the, there was a story actually about, um, you know, when your father passed away and, and the connection you've got with your players. Um, I, I, you said that it was an Irish thing to me. Um, where they sort of travelled across and helped support you. What I mean, what is it about it being an Irish thing? Um, I don't know actually. I mean, obviously, it's it's in Ireland. You know, if someone um, passes away, the the sequence of events is actually a lot quicker than in the UK. So, if someone passes away, then the funeral is often within two or three days. Um, but they always look to support the person, even if they didn't know the person that passed away. So. So in my instance, you know, very few of them had ever met my dad uh, or knew you know, who he was. Um, but as soon as they knew he was in trouble, you know, they were concerned, you know, very concerned. And also I was away back in Cumbria at the hospital. Um, and the number of messages I got from players and staff um, asking about his, how his welfare was and how my welfare was. Anyways, unfortunately he passed away and then Leo announced it to the squad. And uh, I never thought anything of it, really. I just... You know, we got pressed ahead with the funeral arrangements. And it's a tiny it's a tiny church in this small village called Kogeg. You couldn't get 100 people in there. My dad was such a big person in the community. It was clearly going to be more than 200 people coming, um, people outside and everything else. Uh, and then um, six or seven people from Lens said, oh, we're coming. I said, well, you know, we're training. And uh, they said, no, it's, it's, a, it's a day off Wednesday. We're going to fly Tuesday from Dublin to Manchester. We're going to hire a car. We're going to come and stay. There's a travel lodge in Penrith. We're going to stay there and then we'll be there. It was amazing. You know, amazing really that they would do that. And we're not talking just about, you know, Leo and guys to be in, you know, a couple of coaches. You know, it was the senior player, you know, um, the two captains of the team, Reese Ruddock and uh, Johnny Sexton. And, uh, and Reese unfortunately was injured. Um, so he couldn't, he couldn't make the trip. Um, but obviously he, sent his condolences but but yeah johnny came and uh it was amazing um from what some of your linkedin presentations you mentioned about like a dual management model um it's about like facilitating a voice for all uh, how do you actually facilitate this well i think the the notion there is that sort of it's a shared model of ownership so it's not just you know a dictator at the top telling everyone what they're going to do um, it's a um, it's a way in which it's it's shared between the players and the coaches. <coughs> but the key thing is for the players is that the players have to find their voice first, and the players have to develop leadership skills, the art of communication, um, the ability to have a point of view, 
Um, they must um, be able to articulate their point of view. Um, they must commit to extra work outside of their day job. Um, um, but once they've grasped all that, which you've got to sort of steer them and educate them, then that's how it really should work. It's also understanding the transfer of ownership of the game plan, for example, from a Saturday to a Saturday. So Monday, Tuesday might be more coach-led and it leads into a player-led situation come the end of the week. And that's what the dual management model looks like. And if we're designing plays, then clearly we're going to involve some of the key players in our team to help design them because they're the ones on the field doing it. They're the ones who have to manage the situation and they're the ones who often have the intellect and the intelligence anyway. Um, if you were to go back in time, what advice would you tell yourself, if any? Uh, no, I would. <laughs> yeah, a lot. <laughs> um, the, the ranges of emotion one is always stuck with me. Um, I think, you know, show more of your true personality. Um, uh, the Getting the balance right between leadership, coaching and management. Um, you know, after leaving England in 2015, I went away and had time on my own and I thought about what my real passion is. And you go back you know, through that chronological of time and, and, and I'm a teacher first and foremost, which, who then learned leadership. And I went in managerial roles, but it was more because the opportunity presented itself. And, you know, I found I could do them because I was reasonably well organised and everything else, but it wasn't really what got me out of bed in the morning, you know, to, to jump into a suit to go to a board meeting. Um, so... Follow your passion, I think, would be the main thing, really. And my passion is coaching and leading. Um, and if I was to go into a job that involves some management, uh, more so than I'm doing now, I would probably delegate that more. What about if um, you're giving advice to um, a parent to try and help them develop leadership for uh, a 16-year-old or an 18-year-old? What advice would you give to, to them? I think it's tougher being a parent than being a coach of an international team. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think, uh, you know, we were two kids, 18, 19, and, you know, I'd like to think my wife and I reasonably, we've got a reasonable amount of common sense between us. We're both teachers, um, but it's not been easy. It's not been easy by any stretch of imagination. I mean, how people do it with four kids, I've no idea. Um, but uh, <laughs> maybe it's because our two are so close together and they're so competitive. Um, now, I think there the definitely are ways to... Um, to become a better parent um, and to um, pick your moments when you're trying to influence your, your, your children. And a lot depends on the mentality of the, of the child, really. But if there's a magic wand I could wave, it would be that I would put on the curriculum of all schools between the ages of 15 to 18, say, um, leadership, emotional intelligence, relationship building. Um, and I would, I would take away one of the academic subjects. <laughs> um, I'd probably decry academic subjects. But what really sets people apart in life is the ability to lead well, communicate well, build good relationships, be emotionally intelligent. Um, and we don't educate anyone on that. And you're very much, um, as a parent, trying to guide your kids through it. And by default, because you're their parent, they tend to listen to you least. Um, <laughs> certainly between the, the sort of uh, 13 to 17 to 18. I think now our kids are a bit older. We're, we're back, back on track again. Um, but um, but yeah, it's tough. There's actually some stuff, as I say, on my LinkedIn profile. Uh, if people want to connect um, on parenting, um, I did an article for a book uh, and I put, actually posted that not too long ago, which had some really good, um, I think 40,000 people have viewed it. So 
there's something there. There's a lot of good questions that you can ask about how to, rather than tell your children what to do, how to get them, guide them to what they, what they should be doing. Because I think thoughts on youth coaching was one of your presentations. And, yeah. and one of the comments you mentioned was about playing board games with children. I was interested in which ones and, and why you play them. Oh. I mean, we're talking about before before they got phones. Because <laughs> once, <laughs> once they arrived, um, you know, there's no board games taking place. Um, no, we... we, we we would spend time as, as a family. I mean, I don't know. I can't even remember why um, that, that, that quote, to be honest, um, because we didn't, we didn't play hundreds um, as between the ages of 0 and 10. We'd play the occasional card game or whatever, but um, uh, um, the, the, real, the real development in our family was time together. Now, whether it's playing board games or not, it was actually just going and doing stuff together and creating memories together. And we had some fantastic uh, trips that we went on, holidays we went on, um, that I think cemented a lot of the relationships that, that we've got now as a family. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily, and perhaps I'm misquoting myself here, I don't think it's necessarily board games. I just think it's doing stuff together. What sort of memories, you know, you mentioned going away. Was it was it camping in the forest or was it? Going, uh, no, it was usually, was it? usually some sort of like mad, mad sports camp somewhere. Um, <laughs> so one of the one of the places to was a place called Club La Santa in Lanzarote, and the kids absolutely loved it there. It was like a sports camp. You know, they could play tennis and football, and wife and I could join in. The, there was a kids' show that they did. It was amazing. You know, and you'd see your kids on stage and. Um, I was also very lucky that around that time I joined the RFU. So we took them to the Dubai Sevens. Um, and again, their, their memories are still vivid of those sorts of events. We, were with, you know, we went with England, Sevens team, on the team bus. Um, <laughs> and uh, they won it, which was, which was amazing. So the kids can remember that as, as clear as, as a bell. And it was probably, they were seven and eight at the time. Uh, one thing from Tuesday's GAA meet that I, I watched you on was um, one question that came up from it was, what advice did you ignore that you wish you hadn't? I thought that was quite a powerful question. Um, could, could you reiterate on, on, on that slightly? For yourself, is that the answer again? Oh, I remember you asked us one question about um, um, be yourself and uh, don't try and be uh, anyone else. Um, what answer did you give? I think it was exactly that is, is don't try and be someone else and be, be passionate, be passionate about, you know, what you're doing and stick with it. Yeah. Yeah. Stick with your passion. Um, uh, yeah. I think someone said that to me, um, way before I was the England coach. Um, and, uh, it probably slipped from my mind and then, you know, I should, I should have listened. <laughs> That's not to say I didn't enjoy coaching. England. Of course I did. You know, it was absolutely the best job ever, you know, mm chance to influence the game but but uh, going back to that making sure you get the balance right with your leadership your management and your coaching you know get that coaching piece um firmly firmly at the top of the agenda and delegate some of the managerial stuff a slightly abstract question um if you were to describe yourself um if you describe a leader as a picture what would it look like me as a leader as a picture no just any picture you can have any picture you draw on a board and that is what you, your perception of a leader is. 
It's, it, can it be a photo? <laughs> it can be anything, <laughs> anything you want. It's up to you. The reason I mention it is because um, the other day I went, uh, I went up to the farm and uh, in this village of Colgate, there is no light pollution. It's like properly dark at night. Um, and it was one of those beautiful days we've just had recently. And obviously it was the, it was the night time. And the North Star had just come out. Uh, my mum had come out and she said to me, there's your dad up there. Uh, and um, we both stood and looked at the, at the North Star. Anyway, um, I chatted to my mum. She went into the farmhouse and we've got like a granny flat beside the, because obviously we're, you know, I've not been in the self-isolation piece and all that, social distancing. So we had, I was in the sort of like, converted barn, a granny flat that we created. And um, anyway, she went, she went back in the house. And then, I don't know, maybe half an hour later, I went back out um, just to check the front door was locked. And I looked up and the, honestly, there must have been, it, felt, it looked like a million stars, a million. Um, if I could have taken a photo of that um, with all those stars in the sky, and just, I was looking up thinking, geez, you know, the opportunities. I remember someone saying to me, you know, you reach for the stars and all that sort of stuff. But it's really, I'd just take a photo of that and I'd say, that's what leadership is. Leadership is guiding people to those stars. Um, ideally the North Star, but there are so many others out there. Um, that's what, that's what, a vision for me of a leader is someone looking up at a, at a, at a night sky where the uh, it's full of stars. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it's great. Yeah. I had a quite a strange one. For, I asked the kids, my kids that I teach that, and one of them said, the first person out of a trench. I was like, hmm? Good answer. Quite like it. <laughs> yeah, very good answer. Um, so just to sort of wrap all of this up, I, I don't know whether you can do three, but... Um, if there were sort of three golden nuggets, if you want to be a leader, what would what would yours be? Uh, well, I'm not sure I can do it in three. I could do it in like 53. Um, <laughs> I think um, uh, be yourself. Um, be honest. Um, I think you have to have some sort of inspirational quality. You don't have to be you know, a great orator all the time, but at some point you've got to create a vision that people want to drive towards and that you would create something that people would willingly follow, not because they're paid to, because they can see that you've got a vision for where, they, for where you want to go and they want to follow. Um, I think you need technical excellence in the area that you're leading. So it's very, yeah, very hard for me to lead in a financial world, for example, because I wouldn't know too much about it. Um, so I, need to, I think you need to have um, strong integrity, which is based on, um, your actions replicate in your words. Um, so you, you do what you say you're going to do. So don't promise something and then do something else. You know, one of the key things I think that erodes leadership credibility is promising one thing and doing another. Um, so that consistency, as we talked, talked about, is bad. So I think, yeah, they're, they'd, be the, they'd be the made ones, but I mean, there are hundreds, really. Yeah. And the, the other thing, probably the final thing to finish on, is, is um, understand that leadership can be learned. It's a skill that can be learned. It's not something that's bestowed on like a chosen few. Yes, there are some who are natural leaders, but a lot of people can learn to become better leaders. And if you study it um, and you research it, then you can um, become a better leader. And that's why I share the stuff on LinkedIn. Um, so, you know, if there are any people listening, there is a load of leadership which, where you've, I guess, done this research, mm. load of leadership content on their podcasts. Uh, and I've got that course on Udemy as well. Um, which is a leadership course, which 
you know, they've got such good sales that it costs you next to nothing, to be honest. Um, and there's 30 different presentations on leadership there of about 10 minutes in length, bite-sized chunks. So, um, yeah, sign up or, or link in. Yeah. Well, look, thanks so much for uh, your time today, Stuart. It's been an absolute pleasure. And, uh, yeah, all the advice that people have said to me about yourself has all come true. So, uh, look, absolute fun. Top bloke, mate. So thanks very much for joining me. No problem. Cheers. Okay. Cheers, pal.